This episode of All the President's Minutes is brought to you by two One Heat Minute productions. The first, Increment Vice, 45 episodes, deep diving on Paul Thomas Anderson's 2014 masterpiece based off Thomas Pynchon's novel, Inherent Vice, called Increment Vice. Hosted by Travis Woods, produced by myself, Blake Howard, and narrated by the awesome Cat Corbett, takes a myriad of unbelievable guests through this sort of stoner noir masterpiece. Megan Abbott, Jordan Harper, Drew McWeeny, Matt Zoller-Zeitz, Walter Chaw, Karina Longworth, Ryan Johnson. Get listening. And if you're into fiction, it came from the deep. Maria Lewis, the host of our Josie and the Podcasts podcast, is here with her very own audiobook, It Came From The Deep, and an after show, co-hosted by myself. That's in its own feed. It Came From The Deep, Increment Vice, search them wherever you get your podcasts. Now, let's get to it. need a woman president though oh my fucking I, I know that for a fact because of the way that I love movies I love movies any movie that you love chances are it was directed by a man edited by a woman which means a woman directed it that's what that means literally name a movie I'm serious Star Wars Pulp Fiction Jaws Taxi Driver Goodfellas Lawrence of Arabia it's a dude with his camera dick just pointing it everywhere, just, oh, I'm just shooting fucking film. Oh my God, just 18 miles of it. Look at this fucking, every frame is a painting. Oh my God, I'm making the masterpiece. Oh, fuck, I'm done. Yeah. Oh, fuck, I shot a lot of film. Oh, man. See all that film I shot? Holy shit. Shot film everywhere, man. I'm a genius. I'm a genius. It's all me. Did it myself. Woo! And the woman's got to show up. We all done, sweetie? Okay. Out you go. I got to make a story out of this mess. No, we're not going to We're not going to release an 18-hour movie, sweetie. No. Thank you. I got to find the story here. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to All the President's Minutes. I'm your host Blake Howard. It's the 132nd episode of this show, the 132nd minute of Robert Redford and Alan J. Pakula's 1976 masterpiece, All the President's Men. And this is the podcast that unpacks it minute by minute. And when you have a climax of a movie building and you have these monumental minutes to tackle, you need guests that can live up to the monument of that minute. And this is a oh person this is, <laughs> this is a person who I'm, I'm a big fan of. I've listened to and read her work extensively. She just happens to be good buddies with my best mate, Maria Lewis, who's been on the show a number of times. In fact, I lost this person's email address, according to Maria Lewis. I think it's a lie. It's much like the confusion of sources <laughs> that is happening in the very minute in question. This person is the editor at large Empire Magazine. They are a soon-to-be author of a book called Woman, Women Versus Hollywood in February 21, which is the fall and rise of women. And look, I'm just absolutely thrilled to have uh, just another, basically one of the titans of this dying industry who is still left kicking goals. Helena Hara, thank you so much for being a part of all the President's <laughs> Minutes. Welcome. 
Thank you um, for that intro, which is going to be impossible to live up to, but I'll do my best. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, this is, I cannot believe you have made it this far through this film. That is an astonishing <laughs> achievement, genuinely well, astonishing. Well, thank you for that. And it's, this year has been crazy. Some people have, um, some people have gone to work on themselves and I've gone to work on this movie. <laughs> I've just, aban- I've ignored every, everything on myself, just like go to work on this movie. Um, and I never genuinely never thought that this movie would be done. I had sort of aspirationally thought, oh, wouldn't it be nice if I sort of charted originally from like November of last year to January of this year, kind of, you know, that's a good, it's a pretty brisk pace, but a pace nonetheless to set. And in the midst of this, I thought, no, once the American election is over, um, I was aiming for my daughter's birthday, which I'm going to just slightly miss, but I'm like, I just want it to, I think everyone doesn't want to talk about American politics anymore, especially someone such as yourself. <laughs> in the UK and myself here in Australia, it's like, Mm. um, you know, there's so much that's going on. It's occupied the conversation. I feel like this show's done a great, it's been my journey to go through it and have it out and also talk about art and what it matters. But I I think I'm, I'm ready to sidestep uh, and I'll I'll show you what, what is constantly on my desk at the moment. I'm ready to sidestep into serial killers in San Francisco Ah. in a different time of my, uh, of of the world basically. So uh, I'm, 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 I'm interested in doing that, but look, thank you so much for, you know, you've got a huge podcast and a huge podcast schedule. Um, and I appreciate (laughs) that you guys are here, but, uh, you know, I usually have to ask people what their relationship is with this movie and I mm. don't really know what yours is, but knowing mm. the topic, especially of your upcoming book and how insanely well-researched you are, I'm, uh, I'm really extra curious. What's your relationship with New Hollywood, especially in the context of women and this movie? Is this a movie that's mm. part of your sort of movie lexicon, something you revisit? It's it's a little bit. I've, I was actually so obviously watched it again for this, and I think that's only my third time. It might be my fourth, but it's not much more than that. Um, because I watched it back in the day, because of course it's all the presidents' men. You should have seen all the presidents' men. So when I was kind of you know getting into movies as opposed to just watching everything I could in the cinema, it was it was sort of one of the ones on my list. So I, so I kind of saw it then. Um, I definitely went back and rewatched it when Spotlight came out because yes. I just wanted to kind of compare and contrast in my own mind. And, and then obviously most recently, so it's at least three times, possibly four. I think there might've been another one in there sometime somewhere. Um, it didn't come up a lot in the book. I think there might be, it was definitely mentioned in a couple of my sources, but you know, it's one of these great movies with no women in it, really. I mean, there are some, <laughs> there are a couple of great scenes with women and there's a couple of significant female roles, but like not significant oh, th- female I would just say this is a sausage fest of a movie. Like they, they, they can't, it's, it's undeniable. I think, mm. I think the women play arguably some of the most pivotal roles. Jane Alexander's bookkeeper, for example, yeah. uh, you know, Lindsay Krauss's K Eddie and, 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 and uh, Pe- uh, Penny Fuller's Sally Aitken. There's some like female characters in this movie who, I don't know, like, I don't know whether your brain tricks you. And, and I would totally say that this is a possibility is when you are so engrossed in a movie characters make a huge impact on you and they might be just a fleeting mm. character for someone who's a passive viewer but for me i go like have have you seen Lindsay krauss in this movie like i could watch mm. her all day or jane alexander and her pivotal scene so yeah i don't know but I, I i just mean um really like new hollywood as a time yeah 
as as a time of reclamation, I think other another big podcast that we would both be familiar with is like Karina Longworth's podcast. Yeah. Um. Uh. You know, as a time of rec- reclaiming the idea of you know raging bulls and easy riders, etc. And this exactly. whole this whole revisionist, I guess not revisionist, but just an alternate, you know, new voices are actually commentating on that time. So it's really interesting. Yeah, this is it. So I actually have to confess, I've stopped listening to, you must remember this while I was working on this book, just because I thought, look, I'm going to, I'm going to draw the entire thing from that show. Like I can't, I can't listen to it. It'll, It'll influence me too much. So I haven't listened to the Polly Platts series yet because for exactly that reason. Of course. Of course. And I cannot wait. I'm really looking forward to it. But, um, but yeah, I mean, the thing is, um, the new Hollywood only went so far. And this is actually a, a, a sort of a chapter in my book because I've kind of tried to go era by era through Hollywood history and kind of look at there were women in the silent era and they were directors and producers and editors and like everything. Women were doing everything because there were no rules that said they couldn't, right? Yes. And then when the studio system kind of began, and this is before sound came in, it wasn't sound that killed women, it was the studios and the money um, then it was a suddenly a proper industry. It was a serious business. And then women were kind of just gradually pushed out. So during the entire studio era from the sort of 1920, let's say four until about 1960, there were basically two women making any kind of budget. Oh my film, God. Right? Two, there was Dorothy Arsner in the thirties and forties and then Ida Lupino in the fifties. Um, she was still technically in the DGA, but like she'd retired essentially from movies and was working in TV. And this is what's interesting about the new Hollywood. They were on the, on the hunt for all of these new voices. They were absolutely open to new ideas. They were, you know, letting these young men break down the doors and make extraordinary things. There were women there too. There were women trying to do the same yeah. thing. There were women who had made independent films who had screened that had screened in Cannes, it screened in Venice, they'd had success. And they went to the studio chiefs, these same visionary guys who were giving these untried men money. And they were told, Look, you haven't you haven't waited in line, you haven't done your time, you need to build up to this. You haven't done like- that one role on one Roger Coleman movie. For me you know to give mean? you an entire movie oh, no, franchise. No, no, no. There were there were women who worked on Roger Corman movies too. They still didn't, didn't get their stuff. Do you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, like, I know. But it's it's such a it's yeah. such a completely defunct argument of like, oh, yeah. I'm sorry. Was I a visual artist on a Roger Corman movie like James Cameron? Like, exactly. Like no, not no, no. And there not. were you know, so there was like Joan Tewksbury who um, kind of got her start writing scripts and she was told that was your way and if you want to make movies write scripts so she wrote nashville for god's sake nashville um yeah i mean just a and, little and movie made in 1975 just, called nashville no big <laughs> deal you know i mean NBT, and, only working with robert altman in maybe the was, greatest maybe the greatest ensemble cast movie ever of all time yeah i think it's definitely it's, <laughs> it's definitely so in the mix insane. isn't it she wrote insane. thieves like us she wrote eyes of laura mars and when she finally went to direct and made her kind of feature debut. She did um, Old Boyfriends, which is based on a Paul Schrader script, because she didn't think she'd get her own script made. And then the, book, the, the film wasn't a success and she never got another chance. So the guys could fail and get another chance. The women- uh, Failing out. And, and even if they succeeded, they still didn't get another chance. Like it was just, it was a rigged game. So it, yeah, my, my chapter on the new Hollywood in the book is, is kind of a little bit, it's a little bit heartbroken if I'm honest, because, all this talk of new ideas and new voices and opportunities and you know changing things up it, it still only went to white men really yeah it 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 went it was almost like 
they could see they could see the path forward. They could see this crazy youth and radical. And it's like as soon as you make it a gender thing, they're like, oh no, that's too far. It's a bridge too, too it's a bridge too far. And and it's it, and it is too far. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous because when you look back at it, and I, I think it's the great Patton Oswald bit, like every movie that you like is every movie made by a guy that you like is edited by a woman. <laughs> as mm. a woman who's sitting there, like obviously the Marty and Thelma relationship is so oh, important. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, you know, I, I think, I think it's a, an interesting time because uh, really, and I'm so looking forward to your book. It's the same thing of that, you know, tackling uh, the Polly Platt series on, you must remember this. It was mm. just like, you know what? I've been a guy hyper obsessed with new Hollywood and different authorial voices. And that, that lens hadn't occurred to me how, how completely blinded I was. And then when I opened, I was like, this is ridiculous because this very small cohort that seemed to attract all the attention. And even in the context of this film or the president's man, Alan Pakula is not cool enough in the canon of new Hollywood no. to be one of the guys. <laughs> he's not because no, he he's an he? erudite, sophisticated, married dude who'd mm-hmm. worked in as a production assistant all the way up to a producer and eventually a director. And he just wasn't cool enough. There's other filmmakers. Like I think of a Phil Alden Robinson who made sneakers and, and field of dreams. Again, a writer, television producer, very successful. No one mm-hmm. talks about him because he's not like tyrannical. He's not just one of the cool kids. Yeah. Not one of the cool kids. And you just, as soon as you're not one of the cool kids, it's funny that tiered thing. And you go, yeah. wow, that lens, you know, it should be extending to all those different voices. It's it's interesting, isn't it, that the the sort of the idea of cool directors and, and again the auteur theory as a whole is something that again I, I sort of devote a chapter to in the book because I think it's responsible for a lot of that imbalance. It's why we talk about yes. Scorsese without talking about Schoonmaker in the same sentence all the time, you know, <laughs> which we maybe kind of should. I don't, I don't, you know, I don't dismiss the, the the role of a director. It's incredibly important. It is formative in a film, but when you when we only ascribe the word auteur to a certain kind of person, um, we are not only diminishing the the roles of everybody else involved in making the film. All these editors, all these scriptwriters, all these people who might be women, might be people of color, might be anybody else. We're also lionizing a certain type of behavior and and i think that's exactly what you're talking about like you know you read easy Easy riders raging bulls it's so much self-mythologizing but that was happening as they were doing it's not like they're mythologizing it in retrospect they were doing it at the time as well they were portraying themselves as these great white hopes it's the greatest like you know how people say a few people have said on this show when i introduce them they're like i need you to introduce me to women at bars or i need you to introduce me in public <laughs> you know it's just like I, I feel like i get my own hype man and literally they were self-hyping yeah like and and the industry was self-hyping and i think you know um you know my i think our the the, the whole industry is looking we're looking for those new voices and we're looking to hype them up and 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 just some people are better publicists it's just one of those strange things mm-hmm. where it happens and you go when you reflect and you look at the different, the entire eras. And my challenge with auteur theory too is, uh, you know, comparing the two movies that I've done the most extensive deep dives on, one is Heat, obviously, and then the second being All the President's Men. When I look at Heat, that movie feels like an auteurist thing because Michael Mann is such, mm. is a mythologized figure. And, and yeah. maybe my, and my podcast of 180 odd episodes probably helps that you in think? some way, yeah, possibly. Yeah. Um, but it's like, he's a mythologized figure uh, in, in working in Hollywood and in TV and in film. 
what has been kind of refreshing in, in the most interesting way is completely flipping that on its head and coming over and talking about presidents because mm-hmm. if you're talking about traditional auteurs, it's not is an easier definition. It's so much slipperier when you talk about presidents because you have incredible people like obviously Redford himself. Yeah, yeah. Crafting Goldman. the script. Yeah, Goldman. Yep. He was another huge figure. You've got Pakula, you've got Gordy Willis. Um, yep. and, and the other massive ones, and, and this is just from doing the show and learning. Um, I had a really phenomenal chat with uh, with one of Alan Pakula, well, Alan Pakula's assistant producer was a co-producer on the film um amazing many moons ago now it feels like mr john borston who also wrote a film that pakula directed later and john and i talked about you know what an incredible role that the editor robert l wolf had on this film Mm. because the original ending for all the presidents man we're close enough to the ending i feel like i can you know we can spoil spoilers (laughs) close enough to the end you know, the original ending of this film, it was originally conceived that Nixon flies down in that archival footage on a chopper down to deliver his sort of State of the Union speech in Congress. That's the beginning of the film. The final shots of the film are going to be Nixon resigned, jumping in a helicopter, leaving. So that there was this perfect, you know, you know, yeah, in, yeah. The, that nerdy, yeah. in that, in that, in that, George Lucas, it rhymes, you know, like that stupid yeah. thing you see in all the episode one behind the scenes. It's, a, it's a big journalist temptation as well, isn't it? You, whatever your, your intro line is, that's where you echo in your finale, you know? Exactly. It's, it's su- such that. But Robert O. Wolf is a, an editor, worked in all of Peckinpah's films and is a Republican figure. Like he's a Republican guy. That's where his politics lied. And he worked on this movie. And he said, he said, he goes, it's too on the nose. It's mm-hmm. kind of they play they cut did cuts of it and he's like it's it, it doesn't play you just smack you're ramming the point home you've already mm-hmm. you've already sold it and he was right they mm-hmm. cut the teletype ending of this movie because of his advice and so when you hear about moments like that uh, you increasingly go there's some personalities that make that kind of bring or auto theory to life in many ways. And they're almost like, you know, you would, you've done this, you work on different teams and there are editors and leaders. And if I think anyone who's listening, if you've worked in like a team where you've had a great coach or in a sporting team, and there's just something about certain personalities that can kind of drive a like, who's the device, who's the driving force of this. It's that person, whoever they are. Mm. And I think what is great is to just continue to pressure test that and stand against it. And even more so when you look at these like Titanic figures, when they go away and to see where their failures are sometimes or the things that don't quite work. And it's like, what was the, you know, that's kind of what interests me in doing projects like this. Cause I'm like, what is the strange and interesting alchemy that created between all, all this, these people, be, between yeah. all the elements, uh, yeah. uh, all these massive Titanic personalities of actors and editors or huge four different you know on heat four or four editors on heat because of the speed that they were cutting and all those different editors are very accomplished editors in their own right so mm. you then look at their later careers and they've got really different and divergent editorial styles and you're like huh well, like what the hell is this and so it's really interesting i think but um again looking forward this is a fun digression with you to go down that's one question <laughs> got one question in. wow we're doing well we're doing well it's <laughs> <laughs> doing really well um look what I might do, Helen, is for everyone listening as well, mm. guys, we're going to dial up. It is two hours and 11 minutes. Uh, should be on your DVD or your Blu-ray. I've just been told by a boffin from the United States because 
All the President's Men is on HBO Max uh, now, but there's apparently a 15 second ad that happens at the beginning of every HBO Max video. So if you can go to two hours, 11 minutes and 15 seconds, you'll be where everyone else in the world is, but not us. We will be on the Blu-ray. Helen and I are going to watch this minute right now, leading into one of the greatest single monologues, I think, in American cinema. We're going to watch it and see the gravity of the words register in this moment. There's even a split diopter shot. Get excited, everyone. This is what people are watching this movie for. Um, Helen and I are going to watch it together now. You guys are going to listen along, and then we're going to come back and we're going to unpack it for you. Can't trust him. Come on in. We can't come in, sir. Woodrow says there's electronic surveillance. Surveillance is doing it's it. It's being done. People's lives are in danger. Maybe even ours. What happened to that justice source of yours? Well, I guess I made the instructions too complicated because he thought I said hang up when I just said hang on. Oh, Jesus. The story is right. Alderman was the fifth name to control that fund, and Sloan would have told the grand jury. Sloan wanted to tell the grand jury. Why didn't he? Because nobody asked asked him. The cover-up had little to do with the break-in. It was to protect covert operations. The covert activities involved the entire U.S. intelligence community. Did Deep Throat say that people's lives are in danger? Yes. What else did he say? He said everyone is involved. <laughs> Sir, please. <laughs> exactly. have an emergency. It's just, there's just all those tones. He has like this regally pissed off face. It's fantastic. They come yeah, out his face that. should be in a museum. It's honestly <laughs> amazing. It belongs in a museum. It's so good. <laughs> and just, I can't get over all the different lighting decisions here, Helen. I can't, I mean, like when they choose to illuminate the faces, when they choose not to illuminate the faces, the thought that you are leading up to such a climactic moment and all of the, basically the faces of the three leads of the movie are largely, you know, shrouded in shadow for one of the final scenes. It's, it's such a powerful little scene. And that line Mm. that hits, uh, you know, it hits so hard at the end of this minute, but I just will never get over it every time I watch it because it just, it's, it's dealt almost with like casual laissez-faire, but it just stings, which is, he said, everyone is involved. Mm-hmm. Everyone I, 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 is involved. Everyone. And it's just, it's that, that sort of intake of breath of, okay, <laughs> all right, right. This is big. Okay. It's really quite, it's quite almost film noir dialogue it's it's so understated and so kind of hard bitten you know oh i must have made the instructions too complicated i said hang on he thought i said hang up whatever or sorry other way around but uh (laughs) you you know you love bradley's election jesus christ (laughs) (laughs) he's just like can you get like if you're just doing a confirmation why are we making someone dance around a bit like he has to Mm -hmm. let that go I, i love that as like why did you make it that hard like that's a, I hadn't thought of that during the minutes that we discussed. I'm like, why did he make it that hard? I always kind of loved him pacing it out. Anyway, such a hilarious thing. Please go on. He's so good. Oh no, that that was the the main point there. I mean, I just I think as well the lighting. I mean, there's the very obvious and probably too obvious to be the case in this movie thing of them essentially walking from the darkness into the light. You know, because this is the moment yeah. of sort of enlightenment as as far as Bren, Bren, Ben Bradley is concerned. Like finally being convinced that this is not going to blow over this is not going to dry up that this like 
goes all the way to the top. I hate to be a cliche, but it does. Um, and I think this is the bit where they finally, truly convince him of that, you know, um, which is which is why it's so it's so good, you know. And it's 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 not that they say so much here. It's that they finally get rid of maybe the niggling doubts yes. that remained after everything else because they've hit so many roadblocks and it's been frustrating for him, for them, for everybody. And this is finally just kind of the last tiny little bits of information that convince him, okay, there's enough here. This is it, right? We're, we're all in now. It's, you point out something that, you know, a couple of guests of the show, and I remember it because he's, um, he has a lovely way with words. A friend of mine, a great Bostonian film critic, Sean Burns, is like, this movie is just a whole bunch of people talking. Like, it's just that, just this conversation yeah, after conversation. Yep. It should not be nearly as riveting and entertaining as it is mm -hmm. it, it like has no right to be as revisitable as 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 you know sort of deep on every revisit as it is just with people having conversations but i think you just hit the nail on something that i just really want to underscore which is the the way that they respond to his questions because he does great follow-up questions to really make sure that they're on firm ground at every turn the every way he the way he asks and then the way that they immediately like have an answer for him without a single slip of hesitation. I think he's so powerful. Mm. And exactly the point of like, they didn't ask him. They didn't, the, 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 you know, we were right on Sloan. No one asked him about Holderman. He wanted to flip on Holderman. This justice mm -hmm. guy, don't worry about that. That's ephemera. doesn't matter. Sloan's right. Holderman's the guy. Everyone's involved. Yeah. Like exactly. that's so good. And it's it's an interesting contrast, isn't it, to the meeting way earlier in the in the film. I you can tell me the exact minute, I'm sure, where <laughs> they're discussing how to handle him as an editor and oh, you made a mistake there. Yes. You know, this is this is an absolute contrast to that because here there's no handling, there's just here's the way it is, boom, 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 done. You know, it's they're they're so sure of themselves now. There's no more games to be played. They just know what they have and that's all they need to say. And I think especially once in one of their very early interactions with Bradley, mm. where he asks about deep throat and they're like, do you trust him? Yes. He goes, I don't, you know, it's in like one of the first great scenes to like, you know, mm. I can't do my reporters work for them. I don't, I don't like to trust anybody, you know, like, and so, and right now, what did deep throat say? And he's like, he said, everyone is like, the fact that now the lines of dialogue between this source mm. and the whole newsroom too, it's just so much more powerful because he's like, now he's even talking. There's no yeah. more, there's no, there's no more evasion even from deep throat. Deep throat is like, everyone's involved. Everyone's in on this and we're going to get them. And I guess that that's the inference. I, I love what you said there. The noirish, noirish dialogue or the very, very best noirish dialogue feels like, between every line is about four paragraphs and they just oh, yeah. don't need to say it. And yeah. it's, you know, the luxury of one of our other projects we did, which is Increment Vice, which was hosted by Travis Wood, who's a brilliant writer and a great podcaster. And so much of that is like how loaded every film noir line is because of all of that, all of the other stuff under the hood of every line. And I, I think you're so right here. It's like now they don't need to say anything. Like all the weight of everything that's been happening, it's it's right here. Like this is where it is. Yeah. The final bits of the movie is just this interaction and that certainty. It's, it's a, it's a great scene. 
It's so good. And you're right about Bradley being a, an incredible editor, I think, as well. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, this is this is not news to anyone that Ben Bradley <laughs> is a, quite a good editor. But, you know, it's I think it's just brought really well to life in this scene. Like he's pushing them on what do you actually have? What do you actually know? Why do you know it? Where is it coming from? Yeah. But he's not. But he's ultimately, you know, when he decides to support them, he goes all in like he, that's it. All right support you so i just i just love that because you know there is a big big difference between good editors and bad editors <laughs> and and you feel it in this scene you really do by the time that people are listening to this episode um because uh, people would have heard the scene just before this the minute just before mm -hmm. this was the great liz hannah and josh singer who co-wrote the post oh, wow. josh is a screenwriter of spotlight and he talked about in the lead up to the following scene, talking about Liev Schreiber's portrayal as Marty Baron. And he talks mm -hmm. about that next, like that next scene. And I think that what we're about to see in the lead, like in the lead up to this moment, but we're, what we're about to see is that great, you know, that Titanic monologue. But I think you're so right of like, there's an effortlessness. There's no who, what, where, why, when with Bradley mm -hmm. here, he's just pushing pressure testing you. And in the previous minute, Josh Singer, and you haven't had a chance to hear this yet, Helen, but Josh said when he, 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 he did not watch all the president's men when he wrote spotlight, he did not oh, watch wow. the whole movie. Didn't want any part of it watching it. Cause he didn't want to be influenced too much by it. And nor even with the posts didn't want to really revisit cause they were doing something different. It was a different time. He said, but one scene he did watch for spotlight was what we're about to watch. Basically the scene that you and I are talking about in that final monologue, they are talking about wanting to be able to know that once Robbie um, and obviously Mike and, and Sasha and, and Matt, the key spotlight team have all kind of broke, like they know the big story is going to break and they're about to see yeah. the fallout of this. He said he wanted to be able to like the high watermark is Marty Baron being able to give a pep talk speech to these guys who maybe especially Robbie who like, mm. Hey, we're all human. We can sometimes miss these things, but this is what it is. It's our time now. Like, we're scrambling around in the yeah. dark and, and I think that Marty Baron scrambling around in the dark scene and him actually articulating those words of scrambling around the dark. It, it makes no bones about it in the scene in a very beautifully well-lit Boston globe office scene to say scrambling around in the dark. And yet right now in all the president's men, these guys are literally scrambling it's around literally. In the dark. <laughs> uh, except for the moments that are of, of the blistering clarity of them going, yes, we know these facts and we are sure of them. And mm. there's just one other real actorly technique here, which the, I, I've talked about a few times on the show so far, but mm. these guys knew each other's lines. And the mm. fact that Redford, like it half comes out of Hoffman's mouth and then Redford hammers it home with the repetition of like, this is a fact, you know, coming line after line and it being the same line and they're repeating from the different actors, I think is also a deeply underrated thing because it's saying these guys are in sync. In absolutely they know their sync. shit. Yep. And you don't have to do any other stuff. There's mm -hmm. no exposition going, like, we're really on this to get like we're in this yeah. together. There's none of that. It's just like these guys are saying the same words. They're thinking the same thoughts. They're yeah. in sync. It's just a beautiful little technique from an actor yeah. and script. <laughs> 
perspective. It's just, it just, and in terms of the pacing as well, it's perfect. But you're right; it's it's a, a world away from where we first saw them with yeah. um, Bernstein basically steal, <laughs> stealing Woodward's <laughs> copy and rewriting it um, when he wasn't looking. So you know, and and you know, there's always been that healthy kind of respect between them because Woodward's response to that obviously was, "I don't mind what you did; I just mind the way you did, you did it." You know, yeah. fine. He he, they respect each other's talents to that extent. Um, but but yet for them to have gone from that to this level of just as you say finishing each other's sandwiches sorry sentences it's it's amazing <laughs> and i i also love um you know we talk about good editors like the, you know you're, you're mm. the editor at large of empire like i work with the, some good editors and and i even have a text thread with the great editor garth franklin who runs dark horizons oh, amazing. In yeah, yeah, yeah. and and uh i our, our whatsapp text thread i call it the red pen Cause he's the editor, you know, and I, and I'm like, <laughs> go hard, go hard, boy, go hard with that red pen, you know, because Seriously. I think it like, if you can have an editor who like will cut to the bone or something and just help you bust the fluff out of your own stuff, it's a really brilliant thing. Oh, and, it's so good. Yeah. I mean, I've had, I've had a great editor on my book, obviously Terry at Empire, who's the editor in chief yeah. is genuinely, I'm not just saying this cause she's the boss, but she's genuinely an astonishing editor. Her magazine craft is off the charts. Good. Um, I mean, my I try, I try to help other people with editing and stuff. Like I don't have to anymore, which is amazing. <laughs> editor at large is one of those amazing editor kind of. Editor at large, you know, it's good. It's minister with art portfolio. That's what it is. It's an amazing <laughs> job because there's no actual duties attached. But um, but yeah, but I still sort of try to keep my hand in because it's so important. And like even when you're writing yourself you've never written it until you've actually edited it at least once, but preferably about, let's be honest, 16 times. Yeah. <laughs> because that's, that's where things get good. Um, yeah, it really makes all the difference. It's, um, you know, you can have a brilliant writing day. Hmm. Like you'd be like, oh my God, that's my, one of my biggest word count oh, I'm days. So and, good. And oh. I'm good. And then you go, none <laughs> of this is edited. No, no. <laughs> and that editing is going to oh, take a while. <laughs> it's going to yeah. take a while to do it's like yeah. the, 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 the spitting out of the words before the craft and then actually like doubling back and, and making sure mm. that you've got it and you can't always, and I'm sure you had, you know, such heavily researched things. It's like, you're going to scrutinize oh, a lot of daylights out of it. You're going to learn your own mistakes. It's all that stuff. And it's just to have someone and, you know, in the preceding scenes, you know, in a, in a recent episode that we talked about uh, with James Urbaniak, you know, that the line fucking will stand by the boys. Like, fuck it. We'll stand by the boys. Like that's just, yeah. that's the person, that's, so that's the person that you want in your corner mm -hmm. in all of this. And, and it's such a, and there's one thing that I hadn't really talked about was also just in just one of the lines in this scene. And I think right now we live in a world where we live in a post like NSA Snowden world where mm -hmm. it's like, everything's electronic surveillance you mm -hmm. know you hear about like in depth you know embedded journalists these days like never carrying around an iphone they carry around their old flip phones because they don't have the same mechanisms of like tracking and recording yeah. and one thing i i never really realized until i was sort of prepping and scrutinizing the scene over and over again as part of this project is bradley and all of the legacy of you know uh everything that had happened that is set with the posts, like the Panama papers, et cetera. He's familiar that there are government organizations and places out there that will electronically surveil you. And that it yeah. is completely plausible. And I just also love that from that beat of, Oh, that's totally plausible. He doesn't go, Oh, that's mm. BS. He just goes, okay. And he just walks out into his front lawn because 
he's he wouldn't be surprised if people were surveilling him. That's just yeah. another touch in the scene. It's like, oh, mm-hmm. Bradley thinks it's totally plausible for this to happen. That's just yeah, it's it's a really great note because it's like, wow, yeah. in 1975, well, in the setting of this, it's like 72. They're playing for 75, and the end is 74. It's like, ah, oh, surveillance. You know, people would have never thought that people could be bugging their houses or and, until now, until this moment in time. Yeah, I think I think that's. Um, I mean, it, it is always interesting to me that this film came out so soon after the Watergate, like yes. so quick. It's it's really ripped from the headline stuff in a way that you know even Spotlight was a much 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 bigger gap, yeah. um, and and it's and it's it's that immediacy that kind of I think sells that moment. You know, they knew about obviously Cold War surveillance. That they, they knew spies were doing that. That was fine, but. By that point in the 70s, they were beginning to realize, oh, no shit, they're doing it at home as well. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. All, all, this, all the, you know, the Bond era had been well and truly been rung in. And so, like, the, yeah. the concept of external spies, that's, yeah, like, but you're so right. It's like, oh, no, it's our government will no. do that to us too. Our, you know, there's been enough protests for the Vietnam War so far for us to be cynical yes, enough exactly. to believe and, and the civil rights movement and all that sort of stuff. Mm. Um, Trial of the Chicago Seven as well, yeah. Yeah, same, same, same year. And look, same era. I, I would love to rack your brain. I the only text that really contemporary text, other than crappy TV movie movie of the week mm. stuff that with examples that have been able to be drudged up on like Hallmark in the US, which we don't have access to in either the UK or Australia. Um, the Social Network has repeatedly come up on the show as something that is made with such the same immediacy of mm. like the events that were happening and legal battles happening time, yeah. at the same time. And that continues to resonate because really right now I can't, I'm, I'm still, I still struggle. And you know, the trial of the Chicago sevens, you know, which has had a pretty positive, a pretty positive, but mm. s- s- also a little bit mixed um, uh, critical response. Like you said, it's, it's decades after the fact. Oh yeah. Hindsight is years. hindsight is 2020 when you've got 50 mm-hmm. years to work with. So you really, you know, have the opportunity to craft something really brilliant, but like anytime anyone even mentions making uh, a political scandal movie of like 2020 people are like, Ugh, that's gross. Nah, I don't want to see it. Oh it's yeah. Probably gonna be bad. <laughs> I mean the reaction no to that, that Michael Bay produced COVID thriller. <laughs> the, the entire world was united with one voice, just going, I don't want it. No. Um, I mean, I, I do think you can probably be quick. I mean, this is astonishing. This is astonishingly quick, but th- there is probably for some scandals, it is probably possible. Like there's probably ones where there's enough in the public domain pretty quickly. Like I think the Trump era, you could probably do quite a lot with that quite quickly because we know a lot of the shit that went down it's just that nobody cared at the time because they weren't you know because they were watching fox news or something but I, I feel like there is that there could be some quite quick films about the trump era whether whoever they're focused on you know um the, the only other one i know i know of and this is again because i'm deeply biased on the whole michael mann side of things is the insider which of course, was yeah. which is made pretty hot on the heels of everything that happened mm. with big tobacco but again it was kind of happening while it was off the reservation. Like Eric Roth, who wrote it, co-wrote it with Michael Mann, like, and, and Lowell Bergman, like it was all happening and they were communicating as friends and it's all happening, but it's still, it's still, it's still a, a, the difference is Helen, and you would know this deeply mm. from everything you've ever reviewed and watched is like, there's one thing to make something 
you know, right hot on the heels of a, an event and, and give it a cinematic profile and maybe tell an angle of the story that maybe no one has ever seen before or, or, or something like that, or have those aspirations. And then the next thing is actually doing it. And, and I think mm-hmm. that when you look at, you know, the social network, it's like, oh, well, you kind of get like, you know, what Quentin Tarantino calls our generation's Kubrick, like Fincher, you get Aaron yeah. Sorkin, you get this incredible cast, you get this rich topic, you get, you know, you, you get all of the great teams that Fincher surrounds himself with, you get the great score by Reznor and Atticus Ross, you oh, get people score. right at the time. It's just all those alchemical things mm-hmm. are happening and they make that movie. And I look at presidents and I'm like, if you take one element out of this mix, if you take, if you took a Redford out or a Goldman out or a, you know, a Hoffman out, it, it is not the same. It's not the same thing. It just doesn't, yeah. it doesn't work in the same way. Yeah, that's, that's entirely true. I think, I, I do think, I mean, that is one of the things that makes this extraordinary, not just the fact that it's an extraordinary film in its own right, but that given its immediacy, it still has such resonance um, yes. and that they were able to tell something this way and tell something so, um, forensically without losing any kind of yeah, I don't know, universality maybe I don't know but it's it's the it's it's one of these cases I guess where being specific with your details actually makes a, a story feel more universal and not less yes. um, it's weird because like I mean you have to pay so much attention to this film because they just you know just reel off these names places dates people and you just i don't wait who was that and it's literally 10 minutes ago that they last (laughs) mentioned him oh of course yeah all right but but you know it's on your on your third slash potentially fourth viewing of this movie (laughs) like i i I completely agree and that's what i just want to dispel for anyone who's you know if this is your first time listening to all the president's minutes welcome just to listen to helen of course you're right to but um you know uh the the multiple watchings of this movie absolutely help reinforce those details. And I think that one mm. of the things that um, uh, we've talked about is if you just trust, it's that weird thing. If like, if you just trust that the people at the center of your movie actually know what they're doing, when they fleetingly run past a name, what they're yeah. really secretly telling you in their head, just from a craft perspective or a functional perspective is you don't need to know this right now. You just need to know that yeah. they know that right now. Later on, when yes, you remember exactly. it, or if you ever revisit it, or especially now, like unfathomable in 1975, they're thinking about, or 76, they're thinking about this movie like being played over and over again, let alone in the way that I'm doing it. Um, but it's, 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 I think great movies just hold up to that scrutiny. Like that's, a, yeah. a, a, these long form projects, I just look at them and I deep dive and I'm just like, there is no part of this movie that I've ever even for a split second been bored of and Mm. the fact that they lay all of this incredible density into it knowing that really not many people are going to get all this on the first time around i also just kind of go wow even for and to to an extent a lot of it doesn't matter in itself it just matters that they know yes um it's it's a little bit and this is not an obvious comparison but it's a little bit like tenet so i decided when i watched tenet the first (laughs) time i decided pretty early on Oh, it's nonsense. And I just treated it like it was, it was nonsense. And I just let it wash over me. And I did, I focused on what was happening, but I didn't try and analyze it as I was watching it the first time. Um, and, and actually weirdly, it made more sense to me than it did to my friend who was desperately concentrating the entire way through and trying to get his head around everything that was happening. Um, so I think that helped. But when I went back and watched it again, like everything does make sense in to a degree and everything you know, does kind of tie together. So all that detail is there. It can be built in, but you don't have to focus on it for the movie to kind of 
entertain you. And I think it's a similar thing here, um, just with, you know, less you're, time you're, travel. It, it, yeah, way less time travel, <laughs> way less neckerchiefs. Um, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, way less John David Washington, which I think that any <laughs> movie could be significantly improved by him. But I would just say also, um, that's such a, that's where some folks who don't like procedural movies or whatever, like it is mm. about, it is a barrier for entry. Like if you come in and you just like something grabs you, you can watch it. I had the inverse response with Tenet because I was just kind of like, I probably did the worst thing ever in Australia. And I said it a few times on the show, but it's like, in the weeks that the cinemas opened prior to Tenet, mm. I went and saw some of my favorite films of all time I, with some of my favorite people. I saw Predator. I, I oh. saw I saw two, uh, on the beautiful 4K. I saw 2001 A Space Odyssey on 70 mil. I saw Jaws in that beautiful 4K release. And then I saw oh Heat, God. all with as packed the cinemas as Australia was allowing to have a number of people. Wow. And so I had like the best time at the cinema. I felt like I was back in church. It was amazing. And then I went and saw Tenet and I was like, yeah. <laughs> I was like, yeah, it's fine. People were like, oh, I'm like, yeah, it's fine. I like, you know, I think at the time I tweeted, um, Tenet is Chris Nolan's black hat, um, which a lot of people enjoyed. Cause I'm just like, that's what, yeah, look, I watched black. It's fine. Yeah. It's fine. It's not heat. It's yeah. not maybe inception, but it's fine. Um, but no, I think you're so right. There is something, about these more dense procedural movies just from the outset that if you can just, if you can just surrender to its rhythm at the beginning, they're so much more easy to digest than if you're like, Oh my God, who is Charles Colson? Who is Charles? Like you're thinking yeah. about who's Charles. And sometimes then a name gets stuck in your head. Like, wait, Charles, who is that? Who does she work? Was that Col Does she work for mm -hmm. Colson? And it, you will just get lost in the wash of trying to interrogate your yep. own memory for a name. And it's like, forget that. I, I, but now it's like, it is all there. So, you know, those, People have reassured me, like such as yourself, but I would, you know, no offense, but I'll listen to Helen, except for most <laughs> randoms that are communicating with me via Twitter. But it's like, you know, good movies have the detail there if you're willing to revisit it. Mm. You know, little little touches, little flurries, little things to keep looking out for. It's, it's, it's all there if it's really good. Helen, this has been such yeah. a thrill to talk to you. Absolute pleasure. Yeah. Thank you so I'm, much. I'm, I, it was nice to have an excuse to go back and uh, and look at it again, and once again wonder if I'm really a journalist at all. Because honestly, it doesn't feel quite so important what I, we do. <laughs> I, I I just, you know, if if it's that stupid, if you won the lottery, you know, what would you do with my? And I'm like, I would just rebuild this exact set, like the exact the, the exact office of the Washington Post in the seventies. I would I would I would just I would create a, a magazine to rival Empire. I'm sorry, Empire. I'd just take wow, Helen. Wow. I would just I would just take I would oh just take gosh. every film journalist I knew. I would move them all, whether it be Australia, probably Australia now in COVID. No, actually New Zealand. We're all moving to New Zealand. I would create sure. an office that looked exactly like that space. And I would just say, we just have to write stories, but we all have to act like the people in this movie. That's, and, and then just, uh, in the end of the day, like someone can worry about the magazine being printed. I just want all of us to dress in corduroy, write on typewriters, drink too much coffee, all of us smoke. That's my dream, Helen. That's like that. If, if there's wow. one dream, we could just all together, <laughs> call each other, get those old school phones. Like you plug your mobile phone mm -hmm. into the side and do that. That's, you know, just sometimes I dream that we could one day, you know, recreate that. because. Can you imagine, I mean, look, Empire is a great magazine. There are great publications that I've, and, and people from great movie publications I've spoken to. If any one of those publications could have an office like that, 
where all the oh great gosh. writers could shoot the shit all day yeah, and yeah, call yeah. publicists from the same bank of phones and like help <laughs> each other out. I'm like, that one would be the best. I don't care what anyone says. It would be the best. It would just like you, the best stuff would come out of it. It would be amazing. Do you know what though? Like as well, and, and not to sound bitter, but you, know, you look at Ben Bradley's house Oh. in this film and you think journalism's changed hasn't it <laughs> i mean i know he was at the very top of the profession even yeah. in those days and, and the people at the very top of the profession yeah washington post uh, marty, marty baron of course now isn't he at the washington post probably lives in a similar house but at the same time like it doesn't feel like that's what journalists look like now and no. you know so so yeah if i could win the lottery i might just do that just pay everybody a whole bunch more and just we could all have nice houses nice houses well look if the lottery dream comes true, I've got your email address and contact information. <laughs> We're going to New Zealand. Um, that's going to be the plan. But look, yeah, Helen, thank you so much. It's been great to chat to you. Pleasure. It's been great to talk to you about this movie and many other things. And uh, um, yeah, it's just, it's a real treat. And thanks for, thanks for being part of this experience. So have your name on the, on the roster Exciting. is awesome. That's awesome. And thank you very much for having me. It's, uh, yeah, what an exciting project. And you're so close to the end now. Oh, my God. So close. So close. Mere minutes. Mere days for the people listening. If you're <laughs> listening to this when this drops, we're days away. Amazing. Speaking of amazing, my incredible guest, Helen O'Hara. You can follow Helen at, at Helen l o'hara without the apostrophe on Twitter. You can listen to the Empire podcast, which you probably already subscribed to. And if you don't, do yourself a favor, one of the best podcasts about movies in the world. Women vs. Hollywood is out February 18, 2021. You can check out the link in Helen's bio for that. You can also find her writing as the editor at large, popping in and out um, uh, at empireonline.com or writing, uh, reading the physical magazine if you can get a copy of that for those physical media nuts out there. I've been your host, Blake Howard. One Blake Minute is where you can find me on Twitter and Instagram. OneHeatMinute.com is where you can find out about the show. Mail at OneHeatMinute is where you can email us. Please subscribe, rate, review. And if you want to follow what's happening on all the President's Minutes just for the final few episodes, at ATPM Pod for the final bits. Thank you so much for listening. We'll catch you on another episode tomorrow for one of the most anticipated moments of the entire film.